I'm Rick Dedarian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory. In part two of my conversation with DeMontfort University historian Pippa Verdi, we'll look closer at whether the violence of partition could have been avoided. We'll consider how the difficulty of labeling the violence complicates efforts to remember what happened. We'll learn how much of this violence targeted women who were doubly victimized both during and after partition. We'll discuss whether the rise of popular nationalist leaders like Narendra Modi represents a failure to learn from partition. Lastly, we'll think about whether the recent creation of massive digital archives devoted to the memory of survivors gives us a better understanding of partition. If you look at the whole history of the, the first half of the 20th century after World War I and World War II, it's the history of the unmixing of peoples, the breakdown of multi-ethnic former empires. Um, so, I mean, there is maybe that's just in a different part of the world that even though these leaders have been educated in the West, they, they haven't paid much attention to what, what's happened elsewhere. No, and and I think you know this is this is the staggering thing that uh, you know that lack of anticipating that this might happen. But I think you know perhaps one of the things is that they uh, they anticipated some would some migration would take place, but I don't think they thought that millions and millions would get up and go. But then it just seems absurd, doesn't it? Because think, well, what were you thinking of? What did you think would happen? if this is what you called for. So then you can go into the kind of the whole management and, you know, and I, I don't know, I suppose I haven't gone down that road because because then you can do a lot of the kind of ifs and buts and, you know, uh, it, retrospectively it becomes very difficult to go through that because I think the reality then is that it is what it is. And if you look at what India is today, and India today is not this kind of secular, so-called secular India that it was at independence. It has also turned a very different leaf. So perhaps, you know, to some extent, this was inevitable. And of course, you know, in recent years, a lot of, you know, Muslim uh, people have been saying, well, this is why we needed a separate state for Muslims. Um, so, you know, perhaps there's a kind of a certain an element of inevitability. But I think what I was trying to show with my case study of Malay Kotla, where there was no violence and there was this long history of uh, communal harmony, is that although it's a very small Muslim majority princely state in what is Indian Punjab today, I wanted to show that if the leader and the people who have power and authority in that state wanted a peaceful state, they had the power and the capacity to do that. So some of these things have, you know, are possible if the leadership wants it. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that there was... It- the possibility of managing this thing better, even if they're caught by surprise, uh, there could have, uh, you look at other cases uh, that uh, the reaction could have been different. Uh, it didn't necessarily have to be as bad as it, as it, as it became. No, but then Punjab was also uh, very different. And here, you know, there is a kind of peculiar number of circumstances that come together because, it is very different from Bengal because Bengal doesn't experience the same levels of violence. 
And one of the things about Punjab was that not only does it have three different communities, it has Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs predominantly, um, but it was also the area that returned the, and contributed the most to the British uh, Imperial Army. Some 60% plus of the recruitment took place from the Punjab region um, in World War One and World War Two. So this was an area that was known for um, military recruitment. And following the end of uh, World War Two, there is obviously the kind of demilitarization that's taking place. But this is happening in also the wake of, you know, the nationalist movement that is also turning. There is this greater call for independence, and we think this is just around the corner. And a lot of people are actually now also um, uh, hiding and keeping uh, some of this uh, decommissioned weapons, right? So you've got a society where people are forming their own armies and actually all three communities have their own private armies. Uh, you've got, uh, uh, you know, weaponry that has been uh, stacked for whatever reason. You've got a politically volatile area. And at the same time, uh, following the collapse of the unionist government in Punjab, you've got a lack of law and order in the in the area. And that is one of the reasons why it does become so violent. And and I think, you know, it's a culmination of all these factors that come together that make August 1947 so horrific. Um, and so, you know, it, um, yes, there were other, uh, you know, of partition is seen uh, through the lens of the Holocaust or, or framed in terms of, 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 of the Holocaust or compared to it not it not done the other way around. Uh, and uh, but what seems really particular to partition is that there is no master plan. It, it, it wasn't anticipated. Uh, maybe more could have been done. Maybe the conditions were there for the explosion to happen, and more could have been done to uh, um, uh, to address that uh, more effectively. But uh, it, it, it happens uh, without anticipation, with, uh, to, to the surprise of most people. Uh, and it becomes something that, and I know you mentioned a number of different terms that are used to try to, exp- to, try to label the violence. I mean, how do you define it? How do you label it? If it's difficult to remember, on the one hand, you have this diverse region that gets forgotten and what seems to me to add to the difficulty of remembering this past is it's hard to even define or label what was going on. Um, um, so I was hoping you could you could mention this, although women seem to be at the heart of of, of what happened. No, I, th- I I think you know one of the things about um, about this is that um, you know how do we look at the violence that happened. And, and and it's very difficult because, yes, there were elements that were planned, 
There were also elements that were completely spontaneous. Um, there is violence against women. There's abduction. There are people who were just taking advantage of what is uh, of the chaos around them. And and you know, and I've interviewed uh, one or two people who were involved um, just because you know they had this kind of opportunity and they took advantage of that opportunity. But the other crucial thing, which is different here, is that you can have someone who is a perpetrator and be a victim at the same time. You know, how do we look at um, these uh, these people in terms of how we understand? So there's several kinds of different types of violence that are taking place. Uh, you know, and at the same time, there's sectarian, there's communal violence, there's state-sponsored violence. Um, and so I find it very difficult to just give it a straightforward label that this was a genocide or this was a ethnic cleansing. I think, you know, a number of other scholars have done work to illustrate that, you know, there were forms of uh ethnic cleansing that were taking place, or there were forms of genocide. But it's very difficult to generalise and say the whole region was engulfed, or this is a genocide taking place everywhere, because it wasn't. You know, it varies so much. Uh, and so when it when this is the reality, then how can you then try to label this? And understand it, and I think also equally, there's a there's another kind of hierarchy amongst this, which often gets overlooked. And I think this is something that's that's always sort of niggled at me, is especially when we, um, you know, writers of uh, partition studies have reached out to genocide studies and kind of learn from um, from each other, is that this is something that is taking place in August 1947. And given that Europe was emerging from the genocide itself, you can almost see this kind of hierarchy of suffering. Because when you've seen something like that, does the partition pale into comparison? Because nothing could be as bad as what was seen here in in Europe. And so because there's only a few years between these two events, how do we understand these events? Um, and I think that's a very kind of an important one. But within this kind of idea of this hierarchy of suffering, we can also look at the partition violence itself in terms of, well, who are the chief sufferers? You know, and, and often the chief sufferers um of this uh, violence are the most vulnerable. You know, they might be the women, they might be the low caste, they might be children. Um, and I think the kind of the, it's the most vulnerable people who get caught out. And, and so we have to recognize that this is not, you know, this idea of violence is not necessarily equal. I think there is a hierarchy of experiences, whether it's of violence, whether it's of migration, 
and whether it's of resettlement. They are layers and layers. And this is a very stratified society at the best of times. Uh, you know, whether we're looking at caste, region, class, whatever, it's very stratified. So how do you then come to even memorialize this? How can you capture the nuances amongst all of this. It's very difficult. And I think these are the kind of things that trouble me and that I wrestle with, um, you know, myself when I'm kind of doing my work, that how can you do all these different voices justice in, in, in what you do? Hmm. But one of the things that really stood out to me, because you're looking at you discuss in your book about how you know how does this how is it different in what happens in 1947 to a, a older history of communal violence and you use this term power rape and you talk about uh, um, how violence took on a different magnitude and maybe a different intent even if it wasn't planned uh, and a different impact in terms of relations between communities. Um, how would you explain that term? Uh, I think the thing about, uh, and and I think it's 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 more about the role of women, because the thing with women is that they're they're seen as these kind of markers of the community honor, and so when we talk about women being vulnerable it's it's within that context that uh you know women are used to dishonor the other community and because if you dishonor that person that woman then you're dishonoring the community uh by default but this is something that i think is not just peculiar to uh you know, the subcontinent. I think it's, you know, this idea of using rape as a political uh, weapon, as a political tool has been used elsewhere, both in, you know, when we look at the kind of violence that erupted in former Yugoslavia, or even in Rwanda, for example, it's been used there as well. So this idea that, you know, you use rape to dishonour the other community is, is, is certainly prevalent within this period. And it has, you know, it has been used subsequently as well, um, albeit to kind of different extents. But I think during this time, what was really kind of um, pivotal, and this is why sort of, you know, the work that Urvashi Butalia, uh, uh, when they did their work, is very important, is that what they saw was that the state at that time was trying to recover these women who had been victims of abduction and rape. And they're doing this not because necessarily they're concerned for the welfare of these women, but it's almost as a form of recovering their honour. And the kind of assumption that, you know, once these women are recovered, and this is a project that goes on for something like 10 years, that once these women have been recovered and saved by the by the state, that they will be welcomed back home. But no, that's not how it happened. You know, the reality was very different. Many of the families just didn't want these women back. And if it's the project that lasted for something like 10 years, well, 
that's a long time in someone's life, right? So these women, um, and if anyone's kind of interested in, um, you know, perhaps kind of understanding more about this, there's a there's a book and there's also a film called Binger. Um, Binger sort of would roughly sort of uh, translate into a skeleton or, you know, a cage. And it touches on this issue of, you know, someone who has been uh, abducted. And when the state does find the person, what state they're in, because they've actually, they've moved on on in their life, whether they've kind of accepted the reality of their life, uh, formed a relationship with the person who has adopted them, you know, this, this, and some of them actually had children through these relationships. What do you do with the children? Right. It's so much. So uh, these women it, are being forcibly removed from their new lives, their new families. I mean, how, I, I, that was the sense I took away that, uh, yeah. that this is this national project that, uh, both Pakistan and India are engaged with. It goes on for years and, uh, uh, and uh, it, it's this is how you recover your your lost honor that women are a part of, but uh, that these women don't have much of a say. They've gone on uh, and, and had children and, and established new lives that they're once again kind of torn away from their yeah. lives. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about something that was estimated at, uh, you know, 75,000 women who were uh, raped and abducted. Um, during this time on both sides of the border. Um, some argue that it was, uh, that was even, even more, but they are forcibly then recovered by both India and Pakistan. They have a, you know, an agreement in place where they're looking for these women and recovering them and returning them. But as I said, you know, returning them wasn't as easy as they thought it would be because many of the families didn't want them. And so then they were, yeah, housed in, um, in refugees. Okay. Oh yeah. I remember you mentioning that, that they are placed in these shelters where they stay for years. Yeah. Yeah. And many die in those shelters. And those are some of the women that, you know, Urvishi Patalia was uh, interviewing um, these women. And uh, there's been quite a lot of work that's been done on the Indian side, um, less so on the Pakistan side. And actually, it, uh, you know, there's also a bit of a, a sl- slight difference um, here in terms of the way both states sort of treat these women. Um, you know, again, with sort of on the Indian side, there's the, this kind of strong, um, you see this strong sort of uh, sense of um, honour, dishonor, purity, impurity, these concepts that are, you know, that emerge. But this, uh, you see to a sort of slightly lesser extent in Pakistan. Uh, Again, you do see those families who don't want to take them back, but there is uh, much more of, uh, you know, wanting to rehouse these women and remarry them. And so these women were able to kind of build other lives um, afterwards. But yeah, I mean, the whole project, uh, the whole idea, it's, um, you know, one can sort of frame it in that kind of very patriarchal state, wanting to, um, you know, do this for its own reasons, rather than in the interest of uh, of women. 
Now, you you mentioned earlier that this history is difficult uh, to to define in part because uh, there's no clear dividing line uh, between victims and perpetrators, and often they can switch identities. Uh, and in, in connection with the violence uh, uh, targeting women, I mean, you have these stories that you discuss of families that kill their own, uh, so they won't be dishonored, and then later on remember that as a uh, uh, as something honorable, uh, women sacrificing themselves for the families, right? and really not you, know, you. You raise a lot of questions about what was really behind that. What what happened? Uh, um, I mean, would you put that in that category of people who have this double past of maybe being perpetrators and victims? And it's mm. e- easier easier to 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 move on and forget that past than try to delve into the complications of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, those are the kind of episodes which, um, thankfully, there were not that many uh, of these episodes, but perhaps we will never know how, how much of these kind of so-called sort of preemptive uh, honour killings, so-called honour killings took place, um, where the women are forced to um, essentially kill themselves before they're dishonoured. Um and it's absolutely horrific because, you know, it blurs that line between, well, what is happening here? You're attaching honour to doing this. But at the same time, it seems like a very absurd thing to be doing, a very dishonourable thing to be doing at the same time. So that kind of boundary, uh, I think, is very blurred. And, and, and again, this is how, you know, when we kind of think about memories, I think it's very difficult, and especially with sort of, um, you know, this kind of past, that how do you digest this? How do you reconcile this? And how do you understand and frame this kind of past? It's a uh, it's a very difficult past. Um, and, and I suppose the, the, the other thing is that, you know, increasingly I've also thought that, you know, so much of what we do, and of course, um, you know, as an academic, I'm probably as much to kind of blame, but I, I, I have tried to move away from this, is that we tend to focus on the violence and these moments, but we don't focus so much on the commonalities of the common good and what is, what works you know, that kind of communal harmony, which is why I think Malay Kotla was such an important um, study for me, because it showed a very different aspect of partition, you know, a side of partition that we don't often get to see, because we do focus so much on the trauma and the violence. I think one way in which you're focusing on coexistence and trauma at the same time is you mention a point where a lot of the violence was not necessarily in terms of uh, you know, if if you have a place like Ludhiana, where your family was from, where Muslims had coexisted with uh, Hindus and other communities. Uh, the violence was not necessarily between those communities that had coexisted for a long time. It was often uh, uh, perpetrated by uh, uh, people who were forcefully displaced from from West Pakistan, uh, from West Punjab. Um, that uh, um, that you 
you need you need to, need to be careful. And maybe that was just one example, and you can't generalize. I thought that was one point that that you made that often it was people coming from the outside who'd been displaced to carry that anger, yeah. anger with them. Yeah not necessarily the people who had lived alongside those communities and who often sheltered and protected them. No, absolutely. And I think that's something that you do see again and again that, you know, but the problem here is that if uh, this community is being forced to flee from one place to another place, those incoming refugees need somewhere to stay. And if they turn up in Ludhiana, well, where are they going to stay? The Muslims need to get out of Ludhiana so that there is somewhere for these incoming refugees to live. And that, you know, is one way in which you then trigger a series of events. Um, the other is, of course, you know, as I said, the kind of, the, you know, the local authority can also, uh, and, and did play a part. The the police, the military, very communalized in this uh, region at the time. So they all play their part. Uh, at a village level, um, and I interviewed someone where, you know, I, I saw this, is that there was this elderly man who I found out, he didn't say this directly to me, but there was... Um, you know, I had someone who was accompanying me on the, on the interviews I was doing, who was a local um, person, lived in the village. And he told me afterwards, he says, you know, this person that you've just interviewed, and he was a frail, elderly uh, man. He said, when the, in August, uh, when all this violence was taking place, he said he disappeared for four weeks. And one of the things he, and, 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 you know, no one talks about it openly, but everyone knows that he disappeared for four weeks and he was involved in violence, not in his own village, but in neighbouring areas. And he met up with other people. They kind of took advantage of the chaos around them, um, you know, uh, looted, uh, I don't think he was involved in killing anyone, but I don't know if he was. But certainly he came back having looted property. And when he came back, he seemed to have all of a sudden sort of, you know, all this new material wealth that he'd acquired in the last few weeks. So that was just one account of how it worked locally. Now, what prompted this person to do that? Uh, I don't know. But the fact that he obviously didn't target his local area because everyone would know him locally, he goes to an area where he would not be known, he wouldn't be recognised, right? So he's taking advantage. And, and similarly, you know, this is the way things work on a local level. You go and target somewhere where you won't be recognised, you won't be known. Um, so that, that's one. So you protect your neighbours, but you can't protect, uh, you know, yourself from other people. The other is, of course, with these refugee trains that were coming or the car flows full of refugees coming from the other side. They they need to be housed. Uh, you know, there's no plan for them. And the only plan is that you need to then tell the people living here, you need to now go to the other side so that we can accommodate all these hundreds and thousands of people coming in. I tell you, I could not... Um 
read or watch the news about the train accident, having read your book, and think of that in the same way. If you think of a trigger event, I mean, and they talked about there's a history of train, horrible train accidents in India, I mean, trains and the memory of violence. I mean, you would think, does that trigger anything? Do, 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 do uh, memories of, of, of that past come back when those stories are flashed across the screens or, or does it do nothing? I mean, sometimes um, it seems like the, the news of the present is just cast in a, in a, in a history void. Uh, and that's why I know you, you couldn't open these articles, but I, I sent a couple where, you know, one was on uh, an article on the culture of gang rape uh, in India. And this was by uh, a health professional, Indian health professionals writing the article. And she was talking about how the culture really condones violence towards women, that it's, it's, it's pervasive in popular culture. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that there's a, uh, uh, silence on the part of men. And then in the end, she finishes her article by talking about how women need to remember. They need to memorialize this violence. And that's the only way of changing it. But there's no reference to, to, to the past, to a, a history that might, you know, that, that uh, might have contributed to, to this ongoing violence towards women, which the article also mentioned often targets uh, uh, the lower caste women, uh, Muslim women, uh, it just to me, it seemed really striking that that, that was just not part of uh, part of the story at all. Um, or where you talk about communal violence uh, and uh, whether it's an on, ongoing violence in uh, in this northeastern region of India or or, or, or earlier riots. Uh, in, in, in reading that article on um, Manipur, I was reading about how Gujarat. What is it? Nineteen was it? Nineteen ninety two. Uh, her- Bomb- yeah, Gujarat was two two thousand two. Yeah, horrendous yeah. violence with with uh, Modi, who was like the top political figure at the time, who yeah. basically was seen as turning a blind eye to 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 what was happening. Um, just- well, you know, Modi. I mean, before becoming prime minister, he wasn't allowed a visa to enter the U.S. because of what oh, happened. Wow, I did not know that. I mean, yeah, but I just was- can't, when you think about the repercussions of forgetting, I mean, it's, it's really hard to read those stories, see the news and to wonder if, I mean, could things have been different if they had done a better job of really delving into this past or maybe like you said earlier, well, building new national histories that you could feel proud about was, was, was more important. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, in terms of looking at what happens in India today and even Pakistan uh, today, um, I think life is incredibly harsh there. Um, you know, it's incredibly difficult. But I think one of the things that perhaps it's difficult to appreciate when you're over here in the West is to completely comprehend how socially stratified, how socially hierarchical and difficult this society is. It's difficult to generalise for from one area to another area because the kind of local politics matter, the local demography matters, the local languages matter, the local sort of uh, economic uh, situation of certain communities matters. All these things go on to make that 
local society. And each area varies so much that it's so difficult to generalize uh, about uh, about India uh, and to kind of really understand. And of course, you know, under this current government, things have become harder and harder, um, you know, where certainly the Muslim community has been othered to an extent that it is very, very marginalized now. It's, um, you know, it's very difficult uh, for that community. Um, was this in- inevitable? Um, I, Well, it's difficult to say, isn't it? I think, um, you know, when we look around the world, I mean, in the UK, just yesterday, Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, he decided he's stepping down as MP. And you've got in America this situation with with Trump. Um, You know, these have been, and and Modi himself, uh, Prime Minister Modi, incredibly popular, right? So if these are populist leaders, what is making them popular? Why are people electing and accepting these people, flaws and all? Um, so to that extent, are we to blame? You know, we're getting what we're asking for with these people, right? Or is society, you know, is there something in society that is, or, you know, something is happening sort of at the moment, which is kind of leading to the kind of rise of this kind of leadership? Are we going through this kind of wave of, you know, uh, right-wing nationalism, populism that is kind of associated with a number of regimes around the world? Um, But we are, I mean, these people haven't just kind of come in, we have elected them. So I think, again, you know, there there is a need to also then kind of reflect upon ourselves that, you know, this is what we've asked for. And when we see these kinds of horrific incidences take place around us, uh, well, why do we kind of accept it? What can, can we do anything about it? If you take the memory activism argument, you could argue that if they had done, if real people had done more of the work about questioning what happened in the past uh, as being at odds with the types of values they were trying to develop, maybe uh, you wouldn't have gotten to the point where you're electing nationalist leaders who are using communal hatred as a a political tool. Hmm. But on the other hand, I mean, real politics works differently, right? Uh, I mean, (laughs) you know, one of the things about, um, you know, politics is often you get people who are very thick-skinned and and it requires a certain kind of characteristic to really survive in that line. And often the kind of, you know, the so-called kind of good people don't want to go into politics and therefore they will never be in that position to enforce change. So then the kind of, then we're left in society. But then, you know, society around us is very harsh at the moment. Um, even in our own local spaces. I, I mean, that's where I think we can do something that pe- perhaps we can't have an impact anywhere around the world, but in our own local societies, all of us can be, uh, you know, have the capacity to change our communities around us. 
and perhaps that's the kind of the the whole sort of globalization thing going full circle that you know they made us kind of think that we live in a globalized world because uh we were also interconnected interdependent but actually what we need to do is focus on what is around us in the Im- immediate vicinity now before we finish i i want to get your thoughts on uh, on what you've referred to as the crowdsourcing of memories of partition and because you said when you started well one of the problems was that the experiences of ordinary people were left out of the history and oral history was a way of of giving a voice to the voiceless uh, of of including people who are not hadn't been part of the story before and now you have a situation where you have uh, uh, the ability to amass uh, uh, endless uh, volumes of of of, of testimonies uh, uh, and uh, uh, you have memories that are being archived away uh, at, at prestigious institutions and uh, uh, and I think you point out, well, there are certain um, problems that, that we need to be aware of. Uh, there's certain dangers that, that you can run into with um, approaching the past in this way, that it isn't in sync with, with what inspired you to, to, to work on this history originally. Yeah, I think this is something that, you know, I really started um, thinking about during the lockdown um, especially because I think we were all, uh, you know, um, restricted in our ability to move around. Uh, and it kind of forced a certain kind of reflectiveness upon me as well. But the other thing that happened during the lockdown was, you know, increasingly we were using a lot more technology around us, right, to kind of keep connected with people. And and I think it just kind of spurred me to kind of think about uh you know, the work I had done um, and, you know, the way that had been completely transformed. And I think, you know, as I've been completely sort of fascinated by, by the use of social media and new technology and in the way that it has allowed us to share more histories. So on the one hand, there's this kind of very sort of, uh, the, the, there is a dilemma in that on the one hand, it completely opens up these spaces, right? It allows everyone to take uh, take part in it. It allows you to reach people that you might not otherwise reach. So there's this very sort of democratization of history in many ways that is taking place, assisted through tech, but also this kind of surge in interest in sort of partition, which, you know, so it's it's related to a sort of uh, interest in sort of uh, diverse histories at the same time. So I think for me, what has been interesting is the ways that as an academic now, um, partly because of what is happening, um, you know, elsewhere, but also in the UK specifically, where, you know, our research is supposed to have impact, impact with the kind of wider public so that we're not sort of just, you know, uh, creating this new knowledge and keeping it to a a restricted audience. And what I think has been happening is that there's been this kind of blurring of boundaries, 
between the way academic research takes place, this kind of public outpouring of emotion that you see, particularly around, uh, you know, anniversary, because I think anniversaries are important ways of commemorating the past, but it also is a performance that is taking place, um, you know, aided by the kind of media that is around us. And so these things all converge at the same time. And there has been this enormous amount of interest in partition, especially since, you know, when I first came um, or started doing my own research. But what is the nature of that knowledge or that research or those archives and those testimonies? What do they show us? How do we interact with them? And my feeling was that sometimes these are restrictive archives for different reasons. Um, you know, they they have their own sort of regulations or they might not have permissions to share everything they have. But our engagement with them sometimes can be very, uh, I suppose one for a better word, superficial, in the sense that, you know, I might be, so I'll give you my own example. I might be going through uh, Instagram or even uh, Twitter, for example, and you're scrolling through things and you'll see a clip and you show interest in that clip. And it might be a soundbite, it might be a small video, it might be a picture, it might have some narrative. And I'll look into that and I think, oh, that's really interesting. But beyond that, how much do I engage in that content? Do I then follow it up with something else? Or do I go and read a book, find a book about it? How much do I interact with this material other than just scrolling, perhaps liking, maybe commenting? And does it stop there or does it go further? So my question was that, you know, is it limiting how much we engage in this? Um, because there is so much information now, not just in terms of these kind of archives that we're creating, uh, that have been created, but just generally, there is a lot of information around us. So how can we possibly comprehend all of this? We have to find ways in which we can digest this. And often the key words are ways that, you know, allow us to sift through the information. But then that means that we're not engaging with this in its entirety. We're only engaging in it um, at a very sort of basic level. And so on the one hand, then, that, that is the dilemma, that on the one hand, it really opens up these spaces. But on the other hand, the kind of the, our ability to engage with them, I think, is very limited. But then amongst all of this, I think, you know, going back to that point about um the subcontinent being so hierarchical and stratified is that I think sometimes, again, we kind of forget those, uh, you know, differences, whether it's caste, class, uh, whether it's the global north, global south, uh, those who have and those who don't have. How does all of that kind of fit into who has 
access to this knowledge, who has a voice in this. And it goes back to the heart of where I started, trying to give a voice to those who are voiceless. How do those voiceless people get incorporated into this conversation and become part of this history and memory? And and I think that dilemma is still there. That question is still there for me because I don't think we've necessarily got there. You would think institutions like Harvard or Stanford, if they chose to host these memory archives of partition, that they would do it right. But uh, from what you're saying, it almost sounds like the risk is it becomes like a type of Instagram where you're scrolling through testimonies and clicking on something that seems interesting, but nothing much is really asked of you and you just move on to the next one. Huh? And if you're going to do history or memory justice, uh, there has to be a different format that uh, requires you to be more critical, to do more work, to 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 make sense of, of, of what that memory is, where it comes from, who that person is, uh, what context that that's a part of. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think what they're doing is fantastic, because actually, in the long term, there is this great archive that, you know, they they have. But the thing is that, you know, on the one hand, these are places which are far removed from the site of partition. So none of this is actually happening in the subcontinent itself. But the other is that I think as uh, scholars, um or as intellectuals, we also have to, uh, if we're going to get any value out of this, is kind of question, okay, where, who are these people? What is their background? What is their class background? What languages are being used? Um, you know, to kind of understand that this is representative of wider society. That is not a particular segment. So my kind of, uh, you know, cursory sort of research that I did was, I think there's a dominance of, um, you know, certainly uh, people who firstly speak English, but also of a certain sort of well-to-do class. Because I think, and, and this isn't just to do with these archives, but generally those voices tend to be, heard much more because they're able to articulate their ideas much better, right? So they're able to kind of think through some of these things much better. Um, I mean, an, an example, I, I, and it always st- stayed in my mind, was when I was in Lalpur um, doing a, an interview, and it was in an area which was previously, you know, um, uh, Hindu Sikh area, and now was full of these refugees who'd come over from Ludhiana. And I, and I was on the sort of street and there was this person who operated a trolley and he used to dye clothes uh, for a living. And I, I was standing there and I was just having a chat with him. It wasn't even being recorded or anything. I was just trying to get a sense of the place and people. And I was chatting to him and asking him. And he told me, you know, he'd come over, but he was very critical of the state, right? Uh, He was someone who had suffered as a consequence of being completely displaced. Uh, He wasn't happy with his current situation and he was very critical of the state. And Given that this is South Asia, you've 
by that time also got a bit of an audience. And this other person comes over and starts talking. And he says, why do you want to talk to him? He's illiterate. He doesn't know what happened. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, I can tell you what happened. A completely different perspective, right? And in that moment, you can see so much in terms of, you know, a person's class, a person's caste, a person's economic situation, uh, you know, all of it being kind of played out in, in this scene where I'm just, you know, doing a little bit of cursory walking around. Now, other people might interpret that differently, but from that I can sort of, you know, take a lot more about sort of understanding what is happening here. But if we're just going to the same kinds of people and speaking to our friends and family network, what kind of voices are being reproduced? Mm-hmm. So if I can surf memories of partition from the comfort of my own home uh, and uh, surf through endless memories, I need to be careful or aware of who's getting whose voices might be getting drowned out because they're on the wrong side of the digital divide. Yeah, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. But I suppose the other way is that, you know, just to kind of be more critical of what there is there, that, um, you know, history's are never straightforward. It, it, you know, it, it. you can't, you have to understand the kind of wider context of this history, this memory, and this person's testimony. You know, we all, I mean, we've been having a conversation. We have our own baggages, we have our own histories, and I take my own biases with me. So, you know, when I'm doing a book like this, or I'm, you know, studying what I am and researching what I am, I bring my own lens and I bring my own bias. Uh, as much as, you know, we try to uh, make sure that we're doing that subject justice and trying to look at all the, uh, you know, material around us to make sure that, you know, we're being as truthful as possible. But we do have our own biases. Everyone does. And I think we just have to be sort of very mindful that, you know, what is being presented to us, not to just kind of digest it uncritically, whatever it is. And I suppose that's what I do with my students. And and, and that's why I enjoy teaching history, or at least, you know, um, I did um, in terms of, you know, that ability to, you know, get students to just go away and say, look, you know, whatever it is you do, just ask questions. Don't just take everything you are provided with, uh, you know, as truth. And this, I think, is far more important today where there is so much information. And, and I suppose history itself has got so much more diverse and complex uh, over the last uh, 10 years. Some of it is fantastic. Some of it is great. Some of it is absolutely required. But at the same time, you know, we've got, in, you know, history has also become a focal point for these so-called culture wars in the UK. Pippa Verdi is an historian at De Montfort University in the UK. She is the author of From the Ashes of 1947, Reimagining Punjab. Pippa, thanks for joining me today on Realms of Memory. 
Thank you, Rick. It's been fantastic talking to you. In our next episode, on September 5th, we'll return to the story of Partition. We'll hear from King's College professor Anania Kabir about her book, Partition's Post-Amnesias, 1947-1971 in Modern South Asia. If you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. I'm Rick Dedarian. See you soon.